Balancers and welcome to another episode of the Balance Theory Podcast. This week I am super delighted to bring you a guest all the way from Denver, Colorado. Before I tell you a little bit about this guest, I want to tell you how I came across him. So I have a little bit of an interest in neuroscience and all things about the brain. And so my partner, when he moved in, brought all these books that he hadn't managed to read. And one caught my eye in particular, and it was called Activate Your Brain. And as I was reading through it, I found complex data and information about your brain so easy to digest. I really love the flow of the book and the author is fortunately my guest today. So his name is Scott Halford. He is a writer and a longtime professional speaker and an educator of business people worldwide. He focuses on brain-based behavioral science, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and influence. His clients impressively include GE, Google, Bank of America, American Airlines, Western Union, and several more of the most venerable businesses in the world. In 2014, Scott was inducted into the National Speakers Speaker Hall of Fame. And I think if you read the book and if you listen to some of his talks following our conversation today, you'll definitely agree and see why. He has been the brainy business columnist for entrepreneur.com and a blogger for Huffington Post for some time now. Scott is the author, as I mentioned, of Activate Your Brain, a Wall Street Journal bestselling book. And also another book, which I'm yet to read, but really looking forward to called Be a Shortcut, The Secret Fast Track to Business Success. Now, Scott and I had such a long and interesting chat that I've actually had to break up this podcast into part one and part two. So in today's pod, we talk all things brain balance, how we have a constant desire for control. Like, why is that? I'm speaking to you, backseat drivers. Also, we do some really fun brain myth busting. Do we actually use 10% of our brains? Are we left or right side dominant? So many answers to these questions that I was pleasantly surprised to know as well. And today we will start discussing some of Scott's stress erasers, which will be continued in part two. So I hope you love this podcast. Please feel free to share it with someone you think might find it interesting or valuable. And I can't wait to hear all of your thoughts on it. For now, let's dive in. Welcome to the Balance Theory Podcast. It's such an honor to have you on the show. It's awesome to be all the way over there in Australia or wherever yes. else you are. Yes, yeah. yes. We're in Sydney and you're streaming all the way from the US. Is that right? right in the middle? Yep, right in the middle, Denver, Colorado, right at the base of the Rocky Mountains. Beautiful. So just so our listeners get a little bit of a feel for who you are and what you do, can you just explain a little bit how you got into neuroscience and how that journey took you into writing? Yeah, so I had a, a, a really kind of a strange career. I was in television for 10 years. But my, my basic storyline is always about communication and communicating to people when things are tough, when things are difficult, and how to be effective overall so that when you're interacting with people, you are, you're getting the best out of them while giving the best of yourself, you know, bringing out the best in people. And I began to do quite a lot of work in the medical field with physicians and researchers and medical assistants, medical technologists. And they all wanted to know when we were working on emotional intelligence, they wanted to know what was the science behind it so that it took it from a squishy, you know, kind of a touchy feely kind of thing, all the way over to a very robust scientific type of explanation. So we're able to actually show them in the brain the dance between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala and when they saw that then they could they basically could buy everything that I was saying at that point and then they knew it was real they knew that the science 
basically led them to better outcomes, fewer lawsuits, and just happier lives overall. So that's how I basically jumped into the neuroscience. Once it hit, I decided I'm going to take the deep dive, and that's what I did. Yep. And then so that took you into more life coaching and, and writing and really taking that knowledge and I guess expanding it into how people can apply it to their everyday lives. Yeah. So I, I have a team of people and the, I have a team of coaches. I'm not a great coach. I have, you know, coaches are patient. They listen. Uh, they help people to discover their own spot. I'm a great advisor. People <laughs> will hire me and go, tell me what to do. And that's not what a coach does. So um, I have a group of people who coach and there are, there's also an, an assessment arm that is all uh, brain-based assessments in my organization. And then I am out doing workshops and keynotes around uh, Activate Your Brain, which is uh, a book that I have that has really kind of brought into curation some of the most, uh, some of the most seminal research on how, how we live a brain-based life, how we live a brain-based workplace. What does that look like? And we're discovering that there are a lot of things we're doing wrong. So it's been, it's been great. And I have enjoyed every single minute of it. People like their brains. Yeah. And um, we'll get into a deep dive into a whole brain-based culture, what that looks like. And um, as you would know, I uh, reached out to you after re reading the book. So for anyone listening who hasn't actually gotten their hands on the book, I would strongly recommend it. I have no background in neuroscience or anything to do with the brain. Uh, quite the contrary. It's more legal um, media type background. And I found the content really easy to digest. And I quite like at the end of every chapter, how you put like a little activity. So it's not just an info dump. There's actually practical tips um, at the end of every chapter, which help you, okay, how can I apply this into my everyday life? But we'll definitely get through um, some parts of the book just to give everyone a bit of a feel for what it's about. But before we dive into, I guess, the nitty gritty content, I want to do some fun like debunking of a couple brain myths that I guess I'm still a bit unsure of, and I'm sure many people listening may hold similar beliefs. So I'm just going to fire them at you, and then you can hit me with a true false and an explanation if required. How does that sound? Okay. Sounds great. Sound good? All right. Myth number one, we only use 10% of our brains. That's false. We use 100% of our brains. We use all of our brain all of, all of the time. And, and so what what it's probably alluding to and people can never figure it out is is basic capacity um you know how much can your brain hold the prefrontal cortex which is the human part of the brain that invents and reasons and manages emotions it's the captain of the ship it's what makes us different than any of the other animals out there that's not an infinite basic you know it's a, it's not a safe a, a well of, of of deep holding memory you can't you just use it all the time without replenishing it. And that's where people are oftentimes kind of misled. The other parts of the brain that allow us to perform and become something, we have 86 billion neurons. And that means we have about 100, 100 trillion possibilities of who we could be, which wow. is like mind boggling. So that could be like, yeah, we're not using that, but it, we're not designed to. We, we wouldn't want to. You'd be awfully weird if you used 100 trillion different traits you know nobody be ever able to know you so we use what who we are and it's and it involves the entire brain 
Right. So do you think the myth is more that um, using 10% of our brain is really, that's just like what we can realize in a lifetime really to be like a stable human. Um, and the myth just comes from, we can't, we can't. Yeah, really push you know, well, so if you think about your brain and, and what its output is and what it allows you to do, it's chugging along as hard as it can on anything you assign it, uh, assign it whether it be um, building a deck or building an airplane or doing brain surgery. It doesn't really matter what the content of it is. It takes all of its architecture and basically helps you to do everything you want it to do as best as you possibly can. And so it's using 100% of itself right there. So the, the thing that we want to pay attention to is your, your depth of knowledge, your depth of experience, the years you have on this planet, um, how much culturally you are, are you know, ingrained in, in the, every culture in the world that makes you more nuanced, but it doesn't make your brain bigger and it doesn't make it work any more or less than somebody who is doing uh, a, a more mean task or something that is smaller. So uh, you're using your, your whole brain. The, I think the message is pick and choose because once you do, the domain that you have becomes this, this thing that your brain begins to see everywhere. And then your brain is helping you to become an expert in it. It really is, it's an amazing phenomenon. Yes, I agree. All righty. The second myth is we are either left or right brain dominant or controlled. Yeah. So Sperry um, in the 1970s, 80s, came up with split brain theory and I was nominated for Nobel Prize. The, the split brain theory said that we have left brain and all these activities over here and a right brain and all these activities over here. And that if you're a right brain, you're creative and emotional and social. And if you're a left brain, you're analytical, structural, and um, you're, you're, you're about language and things like that. What we discovered is the left brain calls on the right brain in order to complete tasks. The, the right brain calls on the left brain to complete tasks. So it's never single hemispheric focus. There's nothing we do that will be completely single hemispheric focused. The other thing is this, is that... Um, people really got wrong that, 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 that another myth is that the left brain is, if you're a left brain person, you know, kind of thing, the analytical structural, you don't have any emotions. Well, that's where all of your emotions play out is on the left side. Every, no one knows that. They all think it's happening on the right side. Um, what happens is the creativity. Right, the, sorry, because yeah, the yeah. right side is normally attributed to the creativity and stuff. Is that right? creativity and also emotions and they, they they put they lump emotions with creativity and they are they're separate things the left brain is doing more of the the, the congealment of all of the emotions hap happening there and interpreting them allowing you to give language to them allowing you to make them something real but on the right side um, the creativity oftentimes leads to certain kinds of depression and your right brain, especially in the frontal cortex, is the no button. It says, no, 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 don't do that. Stay on the couch. Don't go out and exercise. Do, don't wake up and, and do this early. It's the no button. Um, the left side's the go button. Go, do it again, do it again. What it does is when you activate it, basically, it, it integrates the complete reward system inside your brain. And it's dopamine. And dopamine is, is implicated, of course, the hormone implicated in addiction because it says, do it again, do it again, do it again. The right side says, no. Nope. So they both have good sides. They both have bad sides. 
the, the left side says, go do it, do it, do it. But it also says, I want to gamble. I want to drink. The left, uh, the right side says, stay in the couch. You don't want to go exercise. You don't want to mow the lawn. But it also says, don't eat that cake. Don't drink that drink and don't spend the money. So nothing is, nothing is all or nothing in the brain. That's what we've discovered. And a lot of people try to, to simplify the brain in ways that make it so reductionist that it says it always does it this way. It doesn't. It doesn't operate. That way. It'd be too easy. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, I guess yeah. this, um, this plays in nicely with our whole concept as well in, in terms of looking at the brain as a balanced organ rather than being one side predominant or the other. Like they really do, both sides feed into one another. And we need that unison in order to function logically, rationally, and, you know, whether you are more analytical or creative. I guess the myth debunked is that you do use both sides to some degree. So thank you for uh, explaining that one. Um, the you last... your whole brain going for you. Yep. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> the last one I wanted to throw at you is our brain size affects our intelligence. True or false? You would be really smart. You've got a really big brain. I know <laughs> I've got that. a big head. Um, <laughs> yeah. No. So your brain's about two pounds. If, you, if everybody at home or in your podcast on a jog or wherever you are listening to this, you hold your hand out in front of you and you could hold like a, a little small, you know, one of those little lap dogs in your hand. That would be where your brain would sit and you would be able to hold it with one hand. It'd have a long stem on the bottom for the spinal cord. But it's only about two pounds and it doesn't vary two to three pounds. It's not more than 2% of your entire body mass. The vast majority of us have about the same, right? The same kind of brain. Does, does a more brain mass include more intelligence? It could. It's not, it's not settled yet, but it's definitely not definitive. And the vast majority of people, the anomalies out there may be out there, but the vast majority of us are mere mortals and we're going to only have our, you know, we're not going to get the cone size head. We're going to get our normal brain. And, you know, there was always the debate too. remember this of, of do men have bigger brains than women because our physiology is larger. Bones are larger. Cranium is larger. Yeah. Um, and we've discovered probably you already knew this, um, that that's wrong. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, I would agree. Men are not, <laughs> yeah. 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 All right. Awesome. Um, well, we will go into a little bit later some um, like brain sabotaging and things we can do to really make the most of our brain. But before um, we get into that, I really wanted to start chatting with you um, on one of the topics you focus on heavily in the book, and that's this concept of control. And so I know for a lot of people listening, um, you might be someone who is a micromanager, you might identify as a bit of a control freak, always kind of need to have the first and last say. Um you know, and I feel like control is one of those things where we, we either constantly are getting an urge that we need to have it or we feel like we have lost it completely. So my question to you is control something that, um, you know, based on the way we are wired, we're just sort of subject to whatever the forces are around us or is it something that's, that's really like we can leverage off it and it's totally within our means, like we can control our control in to say it in poorer words. Yeah. You know, a, a really good friend of mine who is a, uh, is a psychiatrist. And he said one time, he goes, you know, when you figure out just how little you are actually in control of things and you accept that you will be free. <laughs> it's like, we have such little control over anything. Control is a, is a really strong, strong urge in the human 
in every human, it's a, the, the, the need for autonomy to feel like you chose, you picked, it's yours. And we know through several studies in, in motivation as, as well as any other kind of psychological uh, kind of the, the, the research on it says this, it says that we have a tendency to behave in ways that we believe we've chosen ourselves, not in ways that have been chosen for us or what, in ways we have been coerced to behave. So when our boss is telling us, um, I need you to do this, uh, yeah, but if the boss can say, do you see why this would be beneficial for you in your career? And attaches it to something that's valuable to me, then it, then it makes sense. When you're four years old, if any of you out there listening have a four-year-old child, you are gonna giggle because this is true of almost every four-year-old child. When you say to them, it's time to go to bed, let's put the toys away. You know, what do you get? You get this maniac running around going, no, 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 you're not the boss of me. And they don't want to go and they have tantrums and all those kind of nutty things. Uh, we grew up and we still have that four-year-old child inside of us. The inner four-year-old child, what's that? The inner kicking saying, no, don't do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's exactly right. And, and the, 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 the thing that goes on with us as adults is instead of tantrums and running around like little four-year-old maniacs, we withhold information. We, we just say, well, if you're not going to ask me, then I'm not going to tell you when you're making a mistake. We make people pay because choices, uh, you know, the choice control piece, those are both huge cravings of the brain. They're very, very connected and related. If you give people choice, if you allow them to pick and choose something, then what happens is they have buy into it. So if you say to the child, um, it's almost time to go to bed. Do you want to go to bed in 10 minutes, five minutes, or now? You choose. You go, 10 minutes, boom, and you make it a happy little dance. And I have had so many parents who, after they had heard this and they tried it, they said, like, thank you, I got my child back. You know, the little angel that I used to have is now back because it was a demon. When you are out in the world, you want to make choice. You want to be able to choose whether you wear a mask. Um, and we all believe we should. You know, most people believe we should. There are people who just out of the very notion they can't choose. not being able to choose, they won't wear it. Yeah. You know, we, we, we all think that's silly, and I do, but at the same time, it's choices. Choice control is huge. There's a second piece to control that, that is important for people to understand. So there's the control of, I want to pick and choose. There's the, 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 the feeling of being in control. There's the backseat driver who says, oh, take it that way. Oh, go this way. Oh, you almost hit, you know, oh, the light's right? It's like, ah, Passenger we, yeah. <laughs> yeah. so there, there's that kind of control and it gets irritating after a while. The other piece of control on the positive, positive side of the chart is this. When you decide what you want to do, when you begin to find your calling, you go from a job, which is you could, you could work at any, you know, fast food restaurant. You're just doing it for money or a shoe store or, you know, retailer, whatever it is, not belittling and besmirching any one of those. But you would typically not make a career, and if you do, wonderful. But if you don't, it's you so you could make money to go to university or you know for for fun spending. It's a job; you're not invested in it. Then you have a career, and the career is typically professional, and it's a string of professional jobs that make a career, and they all have something in common. The thing about a career, though, is that you're never satisfied with where you are. It's always about getting to the next one, yeah. and then you have your calling. 
And the calling is where you finally land and you say, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. Iterations of it. I've been speaking and, and studying human nature, human behavior and communication for like, formally in this business for 30 years. And then when I was in television, I was a documentary producer and I had to go out and deal and understand the psychology of people with the topics that I dealt with. The thing that is important to this is that I have a domain and I feel in control of it. I don't feel in control of yours. I don't feel in control of my employees. I don't feel in control of my significant other or anyone else out there. It's, those are not my domains. When you have a domain that you pick and choose, hopefully early on, you pick and choose it and you dive deeply into it, eventually you rise above the crowd and eventually you will know more than the vast majority of people around you in that domain. That gives you wisdom and wisdom is valuable. And wisdom gives you that sense of like, I don't know everything, but I know this. Yeah. I can't do that, but I know I would raise my hand in a really risky situation and do that because I have that confidence and it comes from that feel, that, that sense of being in control of my little square foot of fiefdom. And that's, that's where control plays a really cooling part uh, and grounding part for individuals. Yeah, and I think um, there's an element of that where you're almost residing to the fact that you cannot have control over things externally to yourself. And that in itself is an, is an exercise of control to actually like throw your hands up and say, right, I'm not actually going to try and reign a domain over all these things outside of me. So if we're looking at yeah. the areas of your life, um, I, I suppose your health is something that you can definitely have control over. When it comes to your relationships, you can only control yourself within those relationships, not necessarily the other people, whether it be, um, your love life, your friendships, um, or anything like that. And then when it comes to work, like you said, your, you know, the sky's the limit in terms of as much as you want to apply yourself. But when you're in your domain, I guess then you really do come into one with with what you're doing, and that's where control kind of finds its nice fusion. Um, what would you yeah. say to people who aren't necessarily like career building, perhaps they might be single parents or at the moment they may be students, um, just, to, just to kind of bring that element of control when it comes to like, you just spoke about it with respect to building a career for people who yeah. really aren't in that work environment, they're just doing something else that's fulfilling. How would you kind of bring that to light for them? Well, for those who've chosen probably the most noble and honorable of all careers, and that is to be uh, a stay-at-home father or stay-at-home mother. Um, the interesting thing is, is that, that your question is, it, it's very telling because people oftentimes don't see themselves as like, well, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know that I have a domain. And when we walk them through an exercise that helps them to figure out what the storyline is throughout their life of the thing that they keep coming back to, because we do, that they begin to see that there is a storyline. So I was in television, right, for 10 years. I hopped over into professional speaking. There doesn't look like there's a storyline, but there is. I competed throughout junior high, high school in speech and debate. I got a scholarship to the University of Puget Sound to speak. Speaking wasn't a career when I was in college because I'm old and they didn't have speaking as a career. And it was actually just starting out, you know, the motivational, the, 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 the Earl Nightingale and, you know, Og Mandino and the big, you know, Zig Ziglar, all the big speakers back then. 
But that just was coming on. So I didn't think it was a career. I got into television. I continued to write and communicate, communicate about the human condition. And then I began to coach people for the camera and executives on their messaging. And it's all basically the same storyline. And that is that helping people to understand who they are and how they are and with other people really predicts a lot about their success mm-hmm. and that emotional intelligence and then the whole neuroscience of, of success all is interlinked and you wouldn't see that if you didn't go through the exercise you probably have a storyline you definitely have a storyline um and i would say that for younger people who are just entering into the workplace experiment as much as you possibly can early on go try things out you know you might have an, a degree in accounting well how many friends do you have who have an accounting degree who are now, you know, building rockets. It has nothing to do Probably with their degree. Yeah. Right, yeah. And so um, it's interesting how many people are not in the field they were taught for. I don't think that, that schooling is necessarily about teaching you specifically for a domain. It can be, but it's really to teach you about stick to doing something you don't want to do, keeping mm-hmm. your brain growing. You're still in school because the brain doesn't start growing until you're 25. So we want to push it. But don't beat yourself up if you don't end up in your career space over you know what you got your degree in a university experiment but when you land on the thing that starts to tickle your fancy you want to you want to stick with it and you want to dive deep because when you hit 50 about 50 years of age that's when the beginning of wisdom starts to kind of unravel and when that happens if you're paying attention if you have enough years of experience enough years of knowledge which you used in university um, your years on the planet and the degree to which you understand the cultures of the world, universal wisdom begins to pour from your mouth and you become extraordinarily valuable to boards, to companies. And it's, you know, those people and we've all been those people, right? Have you, have you ever been in a meeting where with a group of friends or just out there chatting and you say something and you don't know why it's true. You don't have any evidence for its truth. But you know it's true. It's like and an intu- everybody listening. Intuitive comment. <laughs> yeah, it's just, and it yeah. comes out of your mouth, and you're just as, as in awe of it as everyone else is. Yeah. You don't know where it came from, but you know in the pit of your stomach it's true, and so does everyone else listening. That's because what they're hearing is the divination of every single piece of you that actually focused on this. It brought it together, and out came the truth. It's universal wisdom. We're about 11 million bits per second, our brain is holding data in the non-conscious brain. About 40 bits per second, we're holding in the prefrontal cortex. That means that this, what we're doing right now, we can only hold 40 bits per second. But all around us, there are pieces of information your brain is gathering, 11 million bits per second from the time you're born. If you multiply that out, how many seconds have you been alive? Times 11 million. And then all of a sudden you have a number your brain can't even fathom. Well, the non-conscious brain is kind of a, a jealous little keeper of the keys. It says, I will let you in, but you first have to go out, get experience, knowledge, years on the planet, and understand the peoples of the world. And when you do that, and then you get quiet, you just go in, you're not taking data in, you're not putting data out, you get quiet. You meditate, you sit, you listen to music, you exercise, but you get quiet. All of a sudden, the little window opens up and you have an answer 
that you think that you just discovered, but your brain's been holding it onto it all of this time, just leaning against the wall, waiting for you to notice it. And it doesn't typically start to unravel dozen bits and pieces until your 50s, because that's when your domain experience becomes really heavy and, and, and really very valuable. So it's, you know, it's, um, the brain's cool, is it not? I mean, it's really amazing. So uh, young so people figure so it out. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Um, I might just ask you quickly, you wrote in the book about the story of the two brothers, one that had the same um, mm. upbringing in terms of they had quite a violent household um, that was subject to... Yeah, do you, I, I, the research is... Do, do you want me to tell you that about Because yeah, that story is... better than me. It, it's think. profound. It, yeah, it's, uh, it's a I profound story. Yeah. I was doing a documentary on capital punishment in the United States because we, in the United States, still use it. Um, so it's interesting because during the, the twin study, and many of you out there may have been a part of the twin study, the twin and triplet study of the, the 70s and the 80s came together to look at twins who were in intact parents, both with mom, both with dad, one with mom, one with dad, aunts, uncles, grandmas, split apart, never knew each other. They wanted to know the genomic code for behavior. What is a heritable trait? What comes through heritable traits? And the DNA of twins, of course, is, is, is exacting. So if it's heritable, it would be in one, and the other, even if they never knew each other. Yes. So they looked at that data and there was one particular very interesting um, set of twins. One of them ended up in Florida State Penitentiary on death row for committing a very heinous crime. And he was interviewed and was asked lots of questions. But one of the questions he was asked was, why is it that you believe that you ended up here on death row? What happened? And he said, well, that's easy. I grew up with my brother and my daddy, and he was an alcoholic, and he abused drugs, alcohol, and us every single day. He would beat us, break bones, we were bloody all the time, and the only way that I could survive was to hit back. And so you know what he raised? He raised a really violent man who thought violence was the only way to, to deal with things. That's why I'm here. They went to his brother in, in Raleigh, South Carolina, who's an investment banker with one of the largest investment firms in the world completely different life, you know, completely different life. They asked him the same thing. He said the same thing, and except for this. He said, you know, we grew up, daddy used drugs, alcohol, and us every single day, and he beat us. And then we went to kindergarten. And when we went to kindergarten, in the first few weeks that we were there, me and my brother became little terrors. And they decided that we were too violent to be in the same school, the same class together. They separated us. They put us into different places. And one day I was out after that. I was out on the playground beating the life out of this child. Just one of my little kindergarten kids just smashing his face into the gravel. And my teacher came upon me and she grabbed me and she was so angry. And I kicked her as hard as I can because that's what I would do to any adult grabbing me in anger. I would just, I would kick out. So she picked me up and she, she hugged me as closely as she possibly could. She bear hugged me. And she whispered into my ear and she said, we're not going to do this anymore. When you hurt, you don't hit, you hug. I don't think you're getting enough hugs at home. That's what I, I think you need to do more hugs. And so this is what we're going to do. Every day when you come into class, the first thing you do is you put down your, your, your materials, 
and you come find me no matter what I'm doing, no matter where I am, and I want a big hug from you. And in class, when you start to feel anxious or you feel a little bit angry, and I know you are because I can see it on your face, I want you to get up out of your seat and you just walk up front and you give me a hug. And at first, all the kids thought this was weird and strange. And then they became the famous hugging class. <laughs> and what it showed was that genetically, anger is a heritable trait. Aggressiveness is a heritable trait. Lots of things are heritable traits, meaning they come through your genes. Our genes are responsible for anywhere to, from 40 to 60%. We don't know exactly what it is. It's a big, big chunk of who we are. The rest is the environment, who, who we hang out with, who we, you know, what we read, our, what are our influences. But what we found out that was even more startling and is even more important to everyone listening, this is critically important. First off, you can't be responsible for your past. You, you can for your future. The, the past is the past and you, you can put that away because now the future is for you to choose. Mm. The second thing is this, is that your, your genetic code is a suggestion. It is not your destiny. Yeah. You might have aggression in your gene code, but when you look at the guy in Raleigh, North Carolina, that's not how that played out. You look at the guy in prison, it is how it played out. So you, if you lean into it, yeah. But here's the other thing about that, is that at the end of the day, there are also genetic codes on kindness, on giving, on, on, on being uh, um, innovative, being, being able to be analytical to, to the degree that you create the next big, huge um, blockbuster Steve Jobs kind of iPod, right? And those things, when you start to see those, if you pile on them, they become your domain. Hmm. So we're, we're complex. And if anybody ever tries to, to pickle you in a corner and say, this is how you will be because this is how you were raised and you don't want to be that way, you, you can go prove to them that they are wrong, wrong, wrong. Genes are not your destiny. They're a suggestion. Right. And you have and to so, decide whether you're going to pile on top or not. Yeah. I love that story and everything it kind of tells us day to day. But I guess a big takeaway for me when I was reading it is that you really like, you know, when you have those moments and you think like, well, this is just how I'm wired. This is just how I am. It's kind of like a lazy excuse to not lean into your potential or lean into the, how you can control, I guess, what you've been given in life and, and your talents and your skills and qualities. So if anyone listening who might have those thoughts, like, well, I just am the way I am and sort of have a backseat approach towards it. Like you really can take charge and, and, and drive the future in whatever way you want. So it's a, it's a hot button for me. I, I, when friends of mine start to blame their parents for everything, I'm like, dude, you have not been with your parents for 30 years. It's time to take charge. <laughs> You'd be like, wait, just remember the twins every time they say something like that. <laughs> oh, it's a, it's a very touching story. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's beautiful. Um, I'd like to move on to, I guess, your thoughts on the biggest brain sabotaging activities. And that could be um, anything that right now is is like draining on the brain or anything that could have a long-term impact. So before I guess yeah. I give you full reign, I, I did want to speak a little bit about stress because I know it's something it like, you know, whether it's, um, I, I know we can have positive stress, but the negative type of stress, unfortunately, I think features in most of the day-to-day -day experience of, of most human beings today. And I think the biggest thing with stress is that 
we, yep, we know stress is bad and like, yep, let me just finish this deadline and then I'll work on not being stressed. And it's kind of always something we're sweeping under the rug. But I think a lot of us forget about the long-term damage when it comes to stress. So can you talk to us a little bit about the neurology, the science behind what stress actually does to us now and long-term? So we have been wrong about stress for a long time. It's, uh, the word stress is stressful to people. It's also become kind of, I don't know, homogenized. People have become so endured and, and numb to the word stress that we use it blanketly for everything. It, it, it's, this is an important lesson, I think. I, I think it's really important to understand what is true about stress. Cortisol is your stressor hormone. Pressure, which is stress, we're going to, you know, basically take a, a, a coal and make a diamond out of it, creates agility, it creates smart people, it creates the next genius, it creates better skill, it makes you more alert. And we have the opportunity to do that every day because cortisol rises by its natural state, two to three times its natural state every single morning, about an hour and a half before we awake because cortisol awakens you. And then cortisol allows you for the next, oh boy, about three hours after you have awakened to be in your finest thinking and productive mode that you could be because it focuses you. Cortisol is your focuser. Cortisol is responsible for the football players, the rugby players, the tennis players, the actors, the actresses, the person who is interviewing for the biggest job of their life putting them in that seat and making them perform at their very best. Cortisol focuses you. When cortisol becomes too much, then that's when we're starting to see and talk about what happens with prolonged stress because cortisol is very corrosive. It's damaging to all of your organs. It begins to wipe out everything. It's responsible for the onset of every single cancer we know at high levels. It's responsible for the onset and progression of every autoimmune disease we know. It's responsible for things like ALS and MS and things that are neuronal and in the brain, it's responsible for gut things. And this is important for all of you listening because I know there's lots of people around the world with irritable bowel syndrome or irritable bowel disease. And it's indelicate to talk about, but if you've got it, you want to check it out because your gut is the place of your biome, more neurons in your, in your gut than there are in your head. They talk to each other. But the biggest thing is this, is that serotonin, which is the mood regulator and sleep regulator, the hormone that goes to your brain that is the target of antidepressants, 95% of it is made in your colon. And if you're having gut issues, you're going to get depressed. So you want to check out the gut issues and get that taken care of because it's not going to make, you won't sleep well, and you will have more stressful moments because when you don't sleep, everything becomes magnified. Cortisol physiologically brings danger closer. It, you can actually go so you can see it closer. Everything becomes bigger. That, that email you didn't get out in the middle of the night where you go <gasps> and you jump out of bed and you, it, it's a federal offense because you didn't get it out. It's not that big of a deal, but cortisol magnified it. Yeah. So stress over time, that is too much pressure, discounts all of the stress that is good pressure and we stop doing any of it. We stop actually improving we begin to become worse at almost everything. So it looks like this. So if you've got on one channel here and it's, it's, it's Mihai Cheeks at Mihai's um, flow, that flow channel is in, between, is in between two things. If you are learning a skill 
there's stress, there's pressure, and you have beginner's luck and you're pushing your alert. Look at how much you learn in the first six months. It's one of the most important times of your life is the first six months of a brand new job because you're going to be more finesseful and nuanced during that time because you're, of your naivete and because you want to perform well. That's what it looks like when it's good. When you learn more and more and more, eventually, what do you become? Bored. So what do you do? What do you need in order to get back into the, that, that perfect place of growing and learning? When you're bored, you need more challenge. Yeah. You need more information, right? You need, you, you need the, the challenge, the lessons, the things that will make you better. Then there's times when you're in that, that perfect zone and then they put you into a job or give you more responsibilities that are way more difficult than you ever were prepared. You trial by fire and you become extraordinarily anxious. You're the new manager and you're up 100 hours a week working and you're incredibly anxious and stress is eating your life because you're not sleeping and everything's magnified. When you are in anxiety, the thing you need when you are in anxiety is what? Anxiety is just the imagined possible outcome of something. It's, it's, it's not fear. Fear is the physiological reaction to something that is real. Anxiety is a physiological reaction to something you imagine. Yeah. And so if you're anxious, what do you need more? You need more skill and you need more information. So you go get those when you're anxious, and you go get challenged when you're bored and stress will prevent you from doing either one of those because you become completely just defunct on the couch. You become tired. It, it begins to erode all the organs that we talked about and all of the bits and pieces of you. And it will be responsible for so many dastardly things in your world. So we've got to manage it. We want to erase every single day the cortisol. Um, I know I just went on a little little soapbox there, but it, it's really important. And if you wanted to, I could give you the five erasers that I would put into your life every single day. Would love to hear would them. Would like that? Yes, I would yeah. love. Sorry for my blah blah blah, but you know I get going on those. No, I think I think um, stress is such a hot topic. I think it's something most people can relate to. In whatever you know, whether you're um, running a company, whether you're a full time mom, whether you're a student, like I think it's something we all experience. I think this would be extremely valuable to hear. Yeah, I, is, I think it's important. And I think especially with COVID going on and the, you know, the pandemic, people don't, the uncertainty is the other thing that certainty is what the brain likes, likes mm -hmm. control, likes certainty. Um, it likes choice. Things are uncertain right now. You don't know whether you're going to keep your job. You don't know what's going to happen with the pandemic. You don't when know you how to behave. Right? Yeah. Right. How, people are finding out like what kind of parents they actually are by having <laughs> to be with their children. Uh, it's an equalizer. I love talking to big time executives who go, could you hold on a second? They go, Muffy, do not eat that. You know, it's, <laughs> they begin to talk to their dogs or their kids. And you know, I saw an executive who said, Cindy, could you come here? I told you to put the pink on. That does not look good. <laughs> you, know, you, you just never see that. So um, if there's any silver lining, it's that people are becoming more real. Mm. But the, the, the thing that you want to pay attention to is this. I know you do a good job of it because I, I, I talk to you about it. Every single day, we want to reset our cortisol. You want to do it throughout the day because eight, by about 11.30, your brain is now in decision fatigue. You've made an, a, a many decisions and it's not an inexhaustible resource. For all the decisions you make, we have to break our brain throughout the day. So we want to, we found out that we could sprint the brain for 50 minutes intensity with a 
10 minute break, 50, 10, 50, 10, 50, 10. The actual numbers are 52, 17, but 50, 10 was easier to write about. And so you work hard for 50. Then when you take a break, you take a break, you hydrate, you feed it. You have to add, add the complex carbohydrates back up to the brain. Cause that's what it uses. And you have to rest it. And that means you get away from your technology. Yeah. That means that you get away from everything that is work. Everything that you were doing, you have to step away. When you do, you come back incredibly refreshed. So that's a reset. So the five things. Is that what you call active rest? Yeah, awake rest. And, and, and so there's active So active rest would be um, where you might be knitting, right? You might be uh, um, painting. Yeah, stretching. Kind of one of rest to you. But you're, but you're moving, yeah. Awake rest is meditation. Right. It's sitting and being awake, and it gives your brain, a, 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 it's almost as beneficial as sleep. It's hugely powerful. And that's a wrap for this week, Balancers. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you found this episode useful to some degree in either steering or determining your definition of balance today. As always, the biggest compliment for us is if you share this episode with someone who you feel might need it, or if you're on Spotify, you can click follow or on Apple Podcasts, you can leave a rating or review. If you have any suggestions for up and coming podcasts, feel free to shoot us a DM or an email. Our Instagram is at the balance theory and our email is the balance theory podcast at gmail.com. Otherwise, you've always got the option of subscribing to our mailing list. We only send you email reminders when the episodes drop so you get them fresh out of the oven. No annoying spam, we promise. I hope you enjoy the rest of your week and until next time, stay balanced. Stop, stop, stop.